This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about the government's federal budget as well as Labor's budget reply. Then, Dr Diane Hall, an Associate Professor in History at Victoria University, joined me in the studio to talk about her new co-authored book with Elizabeth Malcolm, A New History of the Irish in Australia. Then finally, photojournalist Darian Trainer joined me in the studio to talk about his photographic exhibition, Occupation Displacement. It features photographs of people who've been displaced and are currently residing in Gaza, Lebanon and Jordan. The exhibition is showing at Sun Studios in South Melbourne. And I have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me to discuss federal politics, and we're going to delve into the budget. Hey there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you going? Good. How are you? Both of our teams, 3 and 0. Yeah, hey? killing it. Yes, go the Lions. Yeah. I love that they're like both felines. They're the cats, you know, the small cats and the big cats. Absolutely. I'm, brilliant. I'm also happy about that. I can't think of anything better. And it's also nice that, you know, there's a connection, a Victorian connection to Brisbane too with Fitzroy, which, um, as we know, many people have a soft spot or had one, still have one for Fitzroy. Well, some of us have lived in both Brisbane and Fitzroy. So yeah. I think I can, you know, sort of say that I'm a, I'm a local of both localities. Just too legit, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually wearing maroon. <laughs> you are, you are. That is funny. Do you have a Fitzroy scarf? Because that's the next step. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, you need to wear that to the game on Saturday. Uh, it's going to be a good one too. I've also got an old school Brisbane Bears scarf actually, oh, which is pretty nice. hilarious. <laughs> that is very vintage. Yeah, that How is cool. totally vintage. Oh my yeah. god! I reckon that would go for a lot on eBay now. Uh, there used to be a guy at the Gabba when you went who would get around in his old Brisbane Bears jersey, the old uh, yellow one with the little koala yeah. bear on the front. Yeah. And it was a quite an amazing Kitsch. sight. Yeah, yeah. so good. <laughs> very Queensland. Very Queensland, yeah. yeah. Love it. Uh, so, Ben, let's talk about federal politics. Much has happened since we uh, chatted last. We were really talking about what is likely to be in the budget based on announcements on both sides. And so let's start with the coalition who announced their budget last Tuesday evening. We saw a lot of analysis after in the following week, really. And there's a lot that's come out of it, hasn't there? Yeah, um, I think I, I had a phone in to Jeff and, and Jez and, um, and Sarah and just talked about what it was on the Wednesday morning afterwards. But but really, I think I think the take-home message of Frydenberg's budget is flat taxes, basically. So so what, what's happened is that he's given everyone a tax rebate of $1,080. Um, not everyone, but everyone up to about $120,000 in income. Um, but out to 2023-24, what the government's done is radically flattened the tax scale. So that will mean that people earning $45,000 a year will pay the same rate of tax as people on $200,000 a year. So that's a when we say that's a flat tax, what, what it means is basically the tax rate is the same for poor people and for rich people. Now, that's going to have huge impacts on inequality. And by the way, it's going to mean that most of the value of those tax cuts go to rich people. Yes, what a shock. It's a bit yeah. surprising, isn't it? Well, 
It's not surprising from this government, but no. I, I do think it's a bad thing, basically. Well, Bill Shorten has called it a debt bomb because essentially they've modelled out to, you know, so many years into the future as every government now thinks they can predict the future and how the economy will be. And um, they've really decided to, as you say, flatten the tax brackets, really remove what was a progressive tax system in the income tax portion of it. And uh, what has just just come out from the parliamentary budget office overnight, um, which has been prepared by them and looked at these um, tax rates, this changing of the tax rate and the flattening of tax brackets across the next up to 2024 Um it has, they've found that the stage three of the coalition's proposed income tax cut package will cost $18.7 billion when it's introduced. And overall, this new flattening will cost the budget $147 billion. Yes. Well, it's starting to sound like real money, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, what could you do with $147 billion? Well, you could build an awful lot of schools, roads and hospitals. And I think that's the point. This is a tax that the government won't collect in the future because they're not going to have higher taxes for rich people. And that's going to inevitably impact on government services, I think. You know, this is a clear plan by the coalition if they're to get back into government down the track or if they were to stay in government after this coming election. You know, they're going to have to cut spending in order to pay for these tax cuts. And I think we all know that that's actually the government's plan. You know, they want a smaller government, they want less government spending and they want to have less services for the public. And the interesting part about it is that Labor has framed this as the government playing catch-up on their own policy announcements. As Bill Shorten said, last year he announced the at least first round of these tax cuts. That was what was in his plan. Uh, but particularly that Labor has said we do not agree to the second and third stages and we don't want a further flattening of the tax rate. Yeah, that's right. So Labor was what, what Labor did last year was say that we will give more money away to the lower and to the middle income earners um, and we won't accept these tax cuts to the rich earners. Um, what the government has done is say um, we will give more money away to the middle income earners. They didn't really give anything away to people under $40,000. No. They just don't care about low income earners at all. Um, and then this radical flattening of the tax scale, giving a lot of tax cuts uh, to high-income earners. And actually, there's a very big gender imbalance too to these tax cuts. So because of the way that our economy is highly patriarchal, um, it means that the the majority of the, the value of the tax cuts actually goes to men Yes, and Labor highlighted that uh, in their reply by saying that the majority of people in that lower income tax bracket of 40,000 are generally working part-time or are in casualised workforces or low-paid female-dominated industries and uh, those people who really don't get any relief, tax relief, are women. Yep, absolutely, Um, because in our society uh, women earn less and also women are less full-time in a lot of their work uh, relationships or their their employment patterns. So, yeah, there's a very big class and gender uh, imbalance, if you like, in the the coalition's policy versus Labor's policy. And I think it's actually quite a stark difference, actually, for voters. Mm. They really do have a choice here between two quite different visions of society, one in which the government will, uh, you know, try to even up the scales 
a little bit and one in which the government is going to let the market rip. And really, I think uh, there's been some good analysis come out, not just from the Parliamentary Budget Office, as you've said, but also from the Australia Institute, um, looking at what the implications for inequality will be of these tax cuts, and they'll be bad. They'll, mm. be, they'll obviously help rich people much more than they'll help poor people, and that's obviously going to be bad for inequality. Yeah, it's pretty convincing when you hear that the amount of tax relief someone on $200,000 gets, which is about $11,000 a year, versus someone else who's in the lower end, like 45000 or fifty, dollars it's like $5 a week. Yeah, it's, it's a massive difference, and particularly when you think about someone on $200,000 a year, I mean, do you even know anyone who owns $200,000 a year, Amy? <laughs> Maybe. I could count them on one hand, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, for a lot of us down in the sort of middle income brackets, it seems almost a stratospheric income. And certainly yeah. people are unlikely to notice that level of tax relief to the same degree as someone on a low income. And also those people on the higher levels are have better resources to reduce their taxable income in the first place. So that's another, um, I guess... Uh, benefit for them. Well, indeed, indeed. So, of course, what we're talking about here is taxable income, Mm. the income that you report to the tax office, and there's all sorts of ways to get your taxable income down. You could negatively gear, for example. And as we know, the profession with the highest rate of negative gearing is surgeons. Why (laughs) do surgeons want to get their tax rates down? Well, probably because they earn a lot of money and they don't want to pay too much tax. Yeah. I think the top two paid professions are surgeons and anaesthetists. Yes, yes. Now, I mean, uh, I'm not certainly not having a, a shot. They worked at, hard for it. They did yes. study a lot. Yeah, but, no, yeah. I, I certainly don't have any problems with hardworking specialists in the medical professions earning money. Um, I do have a problem, though, with tax breaks that uh, disproportionately go to the rich. Yes, and a lot of people have said there is a stark contrast in terms of the uh, strategies of both budgets and the, the budget and the budget reply because as you said on the one hand the budget is really about reducing government uh, intervention but still providing a basic level of services because as we know health and education are still the number one priorities apart from infrastructure for voters so they've still put a substantial amount of money into that but Labor have definitely um, gone and well more than one up to them in the health stakes. Uh, And I think they probably looked at the 2016 election where Medicare was such a massive issue where they almost got over the line and have put $2.3 billion now, have announced that funding into cancer, particularly around diagnostic tools, specialist appointments and treatments. Yeah, it's a a really welcome announcement by Labor and I think it's one that will cut through. Um, So there's a lot of money that they're pouring into, yes, as you said, cancer treatment and cancer diagnostics and what that highlights I think is the fact that Australia's health system is now increasingly unaffordable for people with chronic illnesses so that uh, the out-of-pocket expenses now in what is not really truly a public system anymore are crippling for people uh, and there's plenty of families now that are really being pushed to the wall when uh, one of their their members gets very sick so Labor's addressing that and I think that's very welcome I think what it also highlights though is that there's plenty more to be done in health. So people have pointed out that, well, this is great for people who are suffering from cancer, but what about the other chronic illnesses that people suffer from which won't get this kind of mm-hmm. assistance where people, yeah, there's plenty of illnesses that people have that go on for years where they have to pay all sorts of fees for, you know, scans, uh, to see specialists, um, in and out of clinics. Uh, you know, it's very, very difficult.
Yeah, exactly. I mean, particularly if you look at autoimmune diseases and neurological illnesses, MRI scans are a very regular feature for people like that. Yep, yep. And and they're expensive. Very expensive. And Ben, uh, we saw some discussion, a very brief kind of touching on private health insurance by Labor when they were asked about this whole point. You know, private health insurance is becoming unaffordable for most people, or at least the lower to middle income people. And so what are they going to do about it? And Bill Shorten has said that they plan to cap rises in private health insurance premiums by 2% every year. But it seems like that's probably not a massive amount of, you know, intervention. No, well, I think Labor's made its peace with the private health insurance sector, which is a a disappointment for me. I'd like to get rid of private health. That would be my policy solution to this and move to a a socialised medical system. Um, Well, it's creating tiered really systems and tiered um, access to healthcare because people are on very long waiting lists particularly in specialist clinics in the public system and they may not be seen for half a year to a year depending on their conditions. Yeah absolutely there's all sorts of problems with private health insurance um, but it does obviously provide a safety net for people who have it in terms of some of these illnesses so um, it's obviously a a help to some people who have it but wouldn't it be great if we lived in a society where you didn't need private health insurance where in fact the state was prepared to take on the risk of treating people who had illnesses because that's what we believe in 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 our society um we seem to be a fair way away from that unfortunately yeah and we certainly get benefits back because it means people might get better and be able to have full-time work yeah exactly Uh, there's massive productivity um, gains to be had but i I think it's bigger than that It's it's a human rights issue it's an issue of what sort of society we want to live in Exactly. Now, let's mention um, this whole discussion around surplus because we've seen that every year each government, not only Labor but also Liberal, have been projecting a surplus for time immemorial, really. And uh, we saw um, the first thing that came out of Josh Frydenberg's mouth was we're back in the black and we're back on track, which is just kind of cringy. (laughs) And also stolen from someone stolen else. Stolen from New Zealand, yes. <laughs> no worries. Originality is not real. Um, but yeah, I mean, we weren't, we're not actually yet in surplus, are we, Ben? No, no, no. This fiscal year, we were not in surplus. But um, this budget year coming, um, the budget year of 2019 20, the government predicts that it will be in surplus. And I think there's a reasonable chance that it will, will make it. But I think you need to take it in the context of the bigger budget aggregates. So the budget is $500 billion a year now now half a trillion dollars and Frydenberg's budget that he announced I think was seven billion dollars so that's obviously less than one percent you know that we're talking about a very small figure in the bigger context of the budget so I I would say the most accurate thing to say is the budget is in balance now um, the whole surplus thing has unfortunately been blown way out of proportion to what it actually represents in economic terms. Whether the, the federal budget is in surplus or deficit is actually not a particularly meaningful thing in terms of economics, particularly in macroeconomics, unless it's a big figure either way. Uh, you know, And indeed, if the economy is struggling and if we need more fiscal stimulus, then it would make sense to run a deficit. That would actually be a good thing economically. As the economy starts to strengthen, then there's some uh, economic theory that would say you might run a surplus in that point to take a bit of heat out of the economy so that inflation doesn't rise. 
none of this is what we're talking about here with Frydenberg's tiny little budget. This is just about boasting, you know, on the television news that he's got the budget into the black. Yes, and uh, I think they're giving out... Oh, yes, they made special black mugs, which is so fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, politics. It's just so sophisticated, isn't it? So sophisticated. Yeah, it's going to be a really, really bad campaign, I think. I mean, even just looking this week at the the government's attacks on Labor's electric vehicles policy, I mean, they've been breathtakingly dishonest. Some of the things they've been saying, you know, Labor wants to take away your four-wheel drive. Labor wants to take away your ute. It's just... I mean, they just lies. It's, it's just not true. I yeah. mean, Labor wants fifty percent of all new cars to be electric by twenty thirty, which is not even really much of a promise when you realise that Australia doesn't make any cars anymore. So as the world moves to electric vehicle manufacture, we won't have much of a choice. So we're probably going to have to be purchasing electric vehicles down the track because that's what the factories are making. Exactly, and it's funny that we've seen so many examples of uh, liberals out there spruiking electric cars even within the last few months that even electric cars are part of their own climate change policy yeah i mean just quietly i'm pretty sure that people are going to be making electric utes okay and they're probably going to be making large electric suvs so you'll still be able to get a large vehicle that you can put lots of stuff in the back of that -hmm. will be battery powered and in fact i think consumers have shown that they'll move pretty rapidly if they think it's a good deal exactly i actually just was in an electric car a month ago a full one not a hybrid and it was amazing to be in because it just drives so beautifully and quietly and efficiently because it weighs less we're so far behind in australia i mean in switzerland uh, the highest selling car is a tesla in norway half of all cars are electric now right now you know we're just lagging behind as we usually do on on environment renewables well it's funny because um, we saw bill shorten highlight um, this fact by saying that uh, climate change has really poisoned the parliament for the last 10 years and so their whole point is that they've decided to become more pragmatic about these uh, this issue and they've attached climate change to generations and caring about the next generation um, that said their climate change policy is not um, you know massively awe inspiring but it's certainly better than the coalition's Well, yeah, it's certainly better than a kick in the teeth. You know, I mean, the coalition has no climate policy, so it's not saying much. Um, We did talk about this last week. I was... I was disappointed with Labor's uh, climate policy. I don't think it's as strong as 2016 and it's not as strong as Julia Gillard's clean energy future policy. However, the experts think that it can work uh, and and really, you know, I think the debate, unfortunately, is so stupid at this point that most of us would take any action, any mechanism at all, even if it's the National Energy Guarantee, which is a pretty bad policy. Mm. But if it can be made to work, if we can actually reduce emissions, then let's just bloody do let's it. Let's just do it, exactly. Yeah. Um, and they did mention investment in hydrogen energy, which is something that a lot of people have been pushing for in the energy sector for a long time. So that's at least something. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a blue sky technology. I don't know a lot about it, but potentially it could be, you know, real game-changing. It is. I just, uh, I heard a presentation on it about 
two weeks ago and it sounds like it is the the next thing that definitely is, has proven science so that should be good but as you said um, we've seen this kind of really reductive discussion around climate change and other issues and I was also interested to, to hear that if you donate to the Liberal Party you will receive a Stop Labor's car tax bumper sticker which is another <laughs> brilliant marketing ploy by the coalition oh dear yeah, I mean, I think they. I think we know what's going to happen in this election campaign. The coalition's going to run negative. Uh, they don't really have a choice. They don't have many pol- positive policies. Uh, in the immortal words of Linton Crosby, uh, the uh, Liberal Party strategist and pollster, um, you know, I'll run a pa- positive campaign when you can show me a positive campaign that's worked. So, um, you know, I think negative campaigning is, is pretty much ingrained in Liberal Party philosophy um, in terms of the party machinery. And and I think with Scott Morrison, he, he's the kind of politician that, that relishes a fight and I think that he'll run very negative for the next, you know, well, until the election. Mm. I'm speaking with Ben Eltham and we're talking about uh, federal politics, particularly the budget that was handed down and the budget reply speech by Bill Shorten. Um, Now, let's just quickly highlight, given that the budget for the coalition was meant to be a pretty big document, it was really kind of like an election campaign launch, just as Labor treated it in their budget reply. In terms of the um, policies that they have announced, not the just spare money that they've got in a pot for the election campaign (laughs) to pull out. Decisions taken but not yet announced. Exactly, that beautiful line, which will be fascinating to see what happens. They have a much smaller pie to play with, given that they are are not well given they're giving so many income tax cuts uh, compared to Labor, and Labor has said that they will um, reform tax loopholes and subsidies because at the moment it is unsustainable. But what are the key pillars or the key selling points in terms of new policies that the Liberals put in this budget? Well, um, there wasn't a lot, Amy. There was a bit of infrastructure spending and, you know, that's to be welcomed. Congestion Um, busting. uh Uh-huh. There was some really kind of small-scale policies, you know, things around um, Adelaide sort of, you know, small-scale infrastructure projects. Excuse me. Um, There was money for car parks at train stations. Um, So, you know, I think they were trying to take a leaf out of Daniel Andrews' book, I think, a little bit. Um, in terms of doing, you know, suburban-level infrastructure. Um, in terms of the big-picture policies, there was um, there was some money for mental health, which is welcome. So I think there was a tripling of the headspace budget. Uh, uh, mental health experts have said that that's positive, but certainly not enough uh, for well, a perennially underfunded area. Funnily enough... Um, Karangamite, where I come from, yep. is going to get its head, own headspace in Ocean Grove. It's what, it's pretty much the only selling point that Sarah Henderson has at the moment in order to keep the voters of Ocean Grove on side. Yeah, I was well, a bit surprised um, at that. You know, so, yeah, there's, there was some mental health... Um, but there wasn't really any big kind of transformative policies that you could hang your hat on. I mean, a week after the budget is, I, I think, debate about the budget is dying down already. I, I don't think it's going to give them much of a bounce in the polls. I don't think really it's going to... I mean, mainly people are going to be talking about the tax cuts. Mm. Yeah. And the other element of the budget... Um, is this whole discussion around uh, the deficit and paying it off over many years and the plan to pay off a deficit, which Labor believes they will do faster than the coalition. Um, We've seen debt 
double uh, under the um, coalition government, which they're happy to um, not reference. But in terms of economic management, this has become a really big sticking point, at least for the media highlighting the differences and really using these old tropes about who's better at managing the economy. Labor will just keep spending money they don't have and um, the Liberals will be responsible. You know, do you, do you think that actually stacks up in terms of um, the track record of the coalition? No, the coalition's run six deficit budgets in a row and Labor ran six deficit budgets before that. So the budget's been in deficit for 12 years. Debt has crept up, but debt is still very low by international standards. So actually, in economic terms, this debate is nonsense. If you talk to any mainstream macroeconomist, they will say that Australia has a very manageable debt level and there will be no problems with the Australian government paying that off in the future. Um, you know, there's certainly, uh, there's certainly some... Uh, value in uh, Australia repairing its uh, government finances so that there's, uh, if we need to do an economic stimulus down the track, we can do that. But the reality is when the economic downturn hits, the budget goes into deficit automatically because uh, company profits go down, unemployment goes up. So you need to actually do deficit spending in a downturn. This is actually just conventional economics. So the debate about who's paying more debt off faster is political. It's got really very little to do with the health of the economy. And um, there's another key issue which Labor has highlighted, and even the Coalition has highlighted is an issue, though I don't know if they really have a policy in place to address it, but wages... Uh, growth is really at an all-time low and it's consistently not rising to barely any degree. Um, And the Coalition in their budget papers has predicted massive rises in wages growth again, um, but not really any indication as to how this magically happens in the next few years. Where are we at in this whole debate around wages growth between the two parties? Well, this is an important point economically, Amy, and I'm glad you brought it up. So this is actually important because wages growth in this country is at a nearly all-time low. It's it's slightly risen in the last quarter or so, so it's not quite bumping along the bottom, but it's sort of at 2% or lower, which is very low wages growth. And what that means is that ordinary workers aren't getting pay rises. And that's a problem because they don't have money to spend in the economy and therefore, you know, the consumer economy is suffering because of that. And obviously, ordinary workers are also suffering because they're not getting pay rises. And of course, their cost of living continues to increase and rent goes up and things like that. So wages are important and the government has no plan to raise wages. What it's done is basically cook the books. So I think it's made some unrealistic forecasts. So it's said that unemployment will stay at 5% for the next four years, but somehow, miraculously, wages will grow. Now, again, this just sort of violates basic economics because why would wages increase if unemployment is staying steady? You know, normally the reason wages increase is because there's a shortage of workers and bosses need to pay more to get their workers. Now, if there's no shortage of workers, if unemployment is staying steady or even rising a little, then why would bosses need to raise wages? And, of course, if you look at the other aspects of our industrial relations system, there's no right to strike in this country, there's very little bargaining power for unions, there's very little collective bargaining going on in the economy. 
none of those would be reasons for wages to rise either. Mm. Yeah, it is pretty concerning. And Labor has said that they will address this. And uh, of course, it's pretty difficult for um, any government to have a direct impact on wages growth and tell employers to actually give pay rises. But that said, it's funny that the Reserve Bank governor um, said that to actual employees that you should ask for a wage <laughs> yeah. rise rather than telling employers they might they should probably give one Yes, well, but also if you look at the RBA's wage figures itself, it hasn't given its workers a rate of much of a wage rise either. The public service has not been given mm. much of a wage rise. So the government can raise the wages of its own workers and that would flow on through some of the economy. This government hasn't done that. No. You know, so there are decisions the government could take. It could also intervene in the Fair Work Commission, which this coalition government's done plenty of times by stacking it full of pro-business commissioners. Um, um, uh, so, you know, one of the things the government could do would be, for example, to restore penalty rates mm. on Sundays. It could um, look which to... Which Labor has said they will do. Yeah. It could look to raise the minimum wage, which would really help people on low incomes. Uh, Labor has said that it won't uh, legislate to raise the minimum wage, but it will instruct the Fair Work Commission to raise the minimum wage. So, don't know if that it's will a bit work. Dubious, yeah. yeah, but we'll see. Um, but certainly there are policies governments could take to raise wages and certainly this government's not doing those. <laughs> that is so true. Um, let's just finish our discussion by just mentioning the uh, intergenerational focus, the fact of inequality between baby boomers and Gen Y, millennials, etc. This has been centred around the property market for first home buyers and that has been a core focus for Labor in, in terms of winning over younger voters. Um, what do you think of Bill Shorten's election pitch in his speech around um, this whole issue of subsidising property investors that then bid against first home buyers? It's good, but it's not good enough. So Labor has said that it will remove negative gearing for investors, uh, for new investors, I should say, and it will uh, halve the capital gains tax discount, which will also help a little bit at the margins. Um, will. Uh, probably take a little bit of froth out of the housing market. But what Labor hasn't done, and I think this is uh, very disappointing, Labor hasn't committed to a big public spend on building new houses. So there's a little bit of money in there that Labor wants to put into national rental affordability scheme and things like that. But what we did in this country is lots of new houses, mm. all right? lots of new flats, lots of new houses that are affordable so that people can own them and live in them and have an affordable dwelling in which they live. Labor hasn't committed to doing that. And I think until a government is prepared to say, we need to spend big, we need to spend $20 billion a year building 50,000 houses a year for as long as it takes, for as long as it takes until we have affordable housing again in this country, we're not going to have affordable housing because if we leave it to the market, well, how's the market going in terms of affordability? The market has failed. Yes, and then we see the other side arguing that, of course, when you put more supply in, then the value of other homes go down and so pre-existing property investors are unhappy with the idea of a property market that flattens. Yes, I weep for those property investors, Amy, <laughs> those those uh, struggling landlords doing it tough out there. Yep, very three hard or them. five properties. Very, very difficult for those guys. It is tough being a landlord, isn't it, Ben? Oh, yes, yes, very, very difficult. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> 
Oh, good times. Thank you, Ben, for coming in to discuss all of what is happening. Of course, there's much more and um, we can touch on that next week. Perhaps we can look at the NDIS, which has become a major issue for people in that sector and the Disability Royal Commission. Okay, I'll read up. Cool. You've been tuned in to uh, the federal politics slot with Ben Eltham, who comes in to discuss... Ozpol federal politics. There's much to happening at the moment and of course as I said Senate estimates as well and a looming election announcement. We're waiting for Scott Morrison to rock up at the Governor General's house to uh, pull the cord, say it's all happening and uh, hopefully that will happen this week. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. I'm delighted to have with me in the studio uh, Diane Hall, who is an Associate Professor in History at Victoria University, and she has co-authored a book with Elizabeth Malcolm, who herself is an academic, um, recently retired, though I don't think anyone really retires from academia. In a sense, they just keep going and researching in their spare time and writing more books, which is probably a gift, really, for um, us who are very into history and other areas. So it's great to see that Elizabeth's still going strong. And they've both written this great new book, A New History of the Irish in Australia, which is out through New South Books. And uh, Diane joins me now in the studio. Hi, Diane. Hi, Amy. (laughs) Thank you for coming in. It's okay. Um, So this book, well, it has a fabulous cover, which, you know, it's not the main selling point, but it is pretty amazing. I wanted to just quickly reference the iconography on the front. I mean, I often have seen that in Catholic kind of settings, having gone to a Catholic private school, you know, you kind of see that semi-cross image, but what does it represent for the Irish? Um, It's one of the, it's known as a Celtic cross often, or an Irish cross, and it was associated with the what's known as sort of the Gaelic Revival, which is a late 19th century nationalist uh, rediscovery of um, ancient and medieval, particularly Irish before the English arrived, um, iconography, symbols, um, language, songs, myths. It's a quite huge cultural revival, really, in being proud of what it was to be Irish. And one of the things that came to Australia and all over wherever the Irish went was um, things like Irish crosses. They were looking back to the medieval um medieval crosses and medieval monastic architecture Mm. and particularly pick that up in gravestones so you'll see that in cemeteries all over the wherever the irish went um it was not just catholic although it's mostly catholic um you'll mostly see them in catholic cemeteries but they it was also used by anglicans in particular often with irish connections because it was seen to be a a point of pride in being um in connection with the celtic past Mm. and uh, it's something that we often probably need to remind ourselves is that the Irish have their own language as the Scots do as well um, although they clearly speak English but that's another point of difference from the British. Yes I mean the Irish um, the Irish uh, they have two official languages now English and Irish and Irish was the majority language up until the 19th century. It had been um, declining in use and it continued to decline throughout the 19th and 20th century, but it is still an active language within Ireland now. Mm. One of the things that um, scholars see as exacerbating the decline of the Irish language in Ireland was a... um, 
was immigration, was leaving Ireland. And when you left Ireland, you needed English, particularly wherever, whatever language the destination country spoke, and that was usually English. Mm. And so parents quite quite um, obviously wanted their children to succeed so were happy for them to be um, to know English and to be educated in English Um, and that process uh, really sped up during the 19th century. We also find that um, large numbers of those who died during the Irish famine in Ireland were the poorest of the poor and they tended to be Irish speakers. Mm. So there's a number of very um, complex factors going into the different the decline of the Irish language but we know for sure that there were people who spoke Irish who came to Australia. Um, It wasn't recorded in any of the um, shipping lists or anything like that. So we sort of get little glimpses from um, sort of the side, if you like, about the numbers of people who spoke Irish or that there were groups of people who spoke Irish. But there certainly were throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century. Mm. And um, for those who who didn't study history in great depth, which is, you know, certainly a large proportion of Australians... Not to their own fault. Obviously, curriculum hasn't been overly focused on um, a nuanced view of Australian history. But let's just briefly touch on Irish history because it then flows on to when they move here, immigrate to Australia, and all of these issues and tensions arise around their home politics as well. Um, In Ireland, and, you know, today we have the Republic of Ireland and we also have Northern Ireland. Um, In a nutshell, which I know this is going to be a bit (laughs) difficult, but um, essentially why is there that difference or this, you know, a massive um, separation of those two parts of Ireland? Well, it is quite a complex story, but I will try and be relatively brief. (laughs) Um, The English arrived, invaded Ireland in the 12th century, um, a group of English and Flemish, but essentially from England, and they set up um, essentially an English colony, English language, um, law and property, and um, that spread unevenly across Ireland throughout the medieval period. And then once we get to the early modern period, so 16th, 17th century, Queen Elizabeth, those mm. that sort of time. Church of England? There was the Reformation, yeah. yeah. So we get this we get the change in England to to being Protestant. And that they did then in their efforts to completely conquer Ireland enforce Protestantism and it didn't work. So the majority of people who were Irish in Ireland remained Catholic but there was um, always a minority but a minority who were in power who were Protestant. Fast forward through several rebellions and uh, attempted revolutions to um, the 19th and 20th century and there is a develop... This island is completely absorbed within the United Kingdom Um, but there's a growing uh, call for Irish... um, independence which grows through to, throughout the 19th century culminates in the early 20th century with um with armed rebellion in 1916 mm. in, in the Dublin. Easter rebellion that's right the yeah. Easter rising and then that fails but a couple of years later um through several missteps on the part of England but also through gathering um political will uh breaks out into a war of independence uh where the Irish nationalist republicans fought against the English for their independence that finished effectively in stalemate um and there was a treaty 
which is always sort of a capital T treaty when we talk about it in Irish history. Um, and that treaty was uh, what that came up with was that 26 counties in Ireland would be independent. Um, they were essentially the southern counties and the six counties um, became Northern Ireland and they stayed within England. The reason for that was that there was a substantial number, um, a minority, but a substantial minority who were both Protestant and wanted to stay within in the United Kingdom. They wanted this so badly that they had threatened civil war in 1912 when it looked like Ireland might get what they called home rule, but that was essentially Mm. um, sort of self-government, similar to what Scotland has now in a way, um, similar to what Australia had then, their own government for internal affairs but still dependent on the UK for external affairs. Um, And that's what essentially what Australia had in the 19th century before Federation. Um, The Ulster Unionists threatened civil war in 1912 and so they backed down a bit but um, it was always there that that they would not accept that and that was one of the reasons why Ireland was divided through the border um, which is of course currently under huge political scrutiny but that's that's broadly the reasons Mm. for the formation of Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland remains within the United Kingdom up until very recently um, it's majority Protestant and majority Unionist, although that is now reaching um, that's now not Catholics and Nationalists are now reaching 50% but but not yet. Mm. So and a lot of violence happened as well. There was this period of upheaval in the later part of the 20th century as well, which was quite a flashpoint in terms of England or British involvement in Ireland. And I recall that, you know, the British Army were part of, of this conflict and violence. What was that about? That's the period known as the Troubles mm-hmm. and um, 30 years from 1968 to 1998 and that's one of the reasons why currently Brexit and the, its effect on the border between mm-hmm. Northern Ireland and Ireland is such a, it's such a huge issue. Um, the Troubles began with civil rights uh, activists in 1968 inspired by civil rights activists in the United States and in Europe who were wanting to redress the imbalance in power over particularly housing discrimination and employment discrimination. So Catholics were discriminated against with access to public housing, access to education and access to employment. Um, so the and and access to political power. Mm. Uh, and so that civil rights um, demonstration sparked though um, protests sort of protests against them that were uh, led by Protestant unionists and therefore it then de- descended very much into a unionist or a loyalist wanting to stay within the United Kingdom and nationalist or Republican wanting to join up with the rest of Ireland. Um, the Irish Republican Army or the provisional Irish Republican Army, the provost, were reactivated and they started to fight and you get paramilitary groups on the side of the loyalists as well, the UDF and the UVF, the um, who then fought a war in Ireland and spilled over into Britain and Europe uh, to get the Irish... Republicans wanted the British out. The Irish Unionists wanted to stay within um, within the United Kingdom. Mm. That led to over three thousand deaths um, and massive dislocation um, in Irish Northern Irish society. Um, it ended in nineteen ninety eight. Officially ended in nineteen ninety eight with the Good Friday Agreement and a series of um, arms dumps and. Uh, 
deals where the both the IRA and the loyalist groups agree to ceasefire. And that still holds a little bit tenuously sometimes, but it does still hold, mm. yeah. Yeah. And so, as you said and hinted at, Brexit has really um, become a problematic issue for the Irish border and they're calling it a backstop at the moment Um, and so that I guess just goes to show how relevant history is um, to our current day politics in the UK. Absolutely and quite a lot of um, commentators in Ireland and beyond have made the point that if any of the Brexiteers had actually paid any attention to history they wouldn't have um, gone about it with quite such cavalier attitude to to the Irish border Mm. which they appear to have thought would somehow solve itself yeah um and it's a pretty 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 indicative of what general english attitudes are to to irish history most british people don't know very much about it and they don't think it's very important but the border became a sort of um, a real flashpoint during the troubles there was a large amount of violence bombings um huge military um presence of the police the um, there were guard points, there were helicopters flying. It was a militarised zone. And uh, if there's anything that even hints at that going back, uh, people are saying that that will uh, ignite tensions much, much more than anything has done in uh, after 1998. Mm, exactly. So... What a great summary. Well done. (laughs) I'm very impressed. Um, And so then if we're talking about the Irish and those who uh, migrated to Australia, there are, as we can see, a range of experiences and identities and elements of the Irish population that are not uniform and they're not homogenous. And so... uh, what you've raised in this book in particular, which is quite a a strong argument, is to say that Australian historians and others have often really not seen the Irish as a group within, like a standalone group and also within the Irish to see that they're segmented or have different experiences within that one um, group. And as you say, there was Protestants and Catholics, but it wasn't even just divided by religious lines in Ireland when those uh, people moved or came across to Australia. So let's give, a, I guess, a picture of Irish migration, which was pretty substantial, really, um, in terms of its significance to Australia and the, in terms of the colonial element, um, the settlement that uh, occurred, and also um, the dispossession of Indigenous or Aboriginal people. Uh, but I was pretty surprised to see that they... Irish people took up around a quarter of um, Australia's population at um, its kind of founding. Yes, I mean, the statistics are a little bit fudgy because they didn't count people quite the way we would have liked them to. But yes, generally speaking, what we do is we take the um, censuses in the late 19th century and we look at the Irish-born and by they did, they did count Irish-born. Um, and by the end of the 19th century, that was about 12% probably of the, of, the popu- of, the, of the white population. They, of course, didn't usually count the Indigenous population. Um, but what we also do is we then count their, um, their children and grandchildren as Irish Australians. And because the vast majority of Catholics in Australia in the 19th century were either Irish or of Irish descent, we can count Catholicism as a marker of Irishness, um, which means that because the census didn't actually ask people, or they, didn't rec- they did ask, but they didn't record, were you Irish and Catholic? 
um, they only recorded numbers of Irish and numbers of Catholic. So what we can do is we can take the numbers of Catholic as indicative of Irish, and that is about 25% mm. by the end of the, the 19th century. Yep. Yep. So it's um, a really substantial portion, proportion of Australia's population. And uh, I was also interested, you highlight these kind of three tiers or phases of migration and the initial phase is around convicts Mm -hmm. and the fact that of the nearly 20,900 convicts sent to Australia between 1846 and 1853, 45% of them were women, which is pretty impressive um, and I guess not that surprising when you think about the whole plan of to, you know, populate the Mm. colonies, Um, but also that 33% of the men were Irish-born. So even in that first phase of migration, um, you know, a great proportion of those were from Ireland. In terms of the convict makeup and why they came to Australia, um, what, what kind of crimes or, like, things did Irish people do wrong that they were kind of doomed to head to this dry, hot, you know, land that clearly wasn't owned by British um, colony or empire, but they decided to, to take it over anyway. Yeah, well, they did decide to take it over. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the reason for convicts coming to Australia was to do with um, the overflow of po- prison populations in the United Kingdom, including Ireland, and the fact that other options that had been used before, particularly to North America, were now closed because of um, US independence. So that's what broadly it's more complicated than that but broadly that's why they came to Australia Um, and yes there were a substantial number of Irish amongst those um, amongst the entire convict population the majority of them it was relatively minor property crimes what we would call relatively Mm. minor property crimes um, for which they received the minimum sentence which was seven years um, uh, transportation um there were some who we can um absolutely call political prisoners that are political convicts that they were involved in um the revolutionary activity of the 1798 rebellion the 1803 attempted rebellion and the 1848 one but they're 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 quite small numbers of political prisoners most of them were involved as i said in property crimes some of those were uh poverty driven that they they needed animals or they needed um, uh, cloth to because of poverty. Others were driven by uh, sort of localised disputes over property. Um, the Irish, you know, rural Irish, had a bit of a propensity for maiming, maiming um, animals as a way of getting back at other people over property disputes um, and, and that could get you transported as well. Um, so, yeah, relatively minor um, Uh, and they were probably more likely to be first offenders from Ireland. We're not completely sure why that is. There seems to be an attitude of the magistrates in Ireland that um, coming, perhaps it was that coming to Australia would have given them a fresh start. It was a good thing to do for for people on the road to crime. Um, Perhaps they were influenced by the Irish were overpopulated and overcriminalised and we just need to get rid of them. We haven't really come to the bottom of exactly why those proportions are so different. Mm. And so um, the Irish, there is that element of involuntary settlement and then there was an element of voluntary settlement as well and um, you highlight the fact that 
it was much easier or closer to head to America and settle there than it was to go to Australia. So what were some of the reasons why um, an Irish person might have voluntarily uprooted their life in their home country and moved to Australia? Yeah, well, from the 1830s onwards, we get free settlement in Australia, and that's the British government um, and the colonial authorities wanting... um, what they saw as good yeoman stock from the from the United Kingdom to come and settle in Australia and build up um, build up a settlement here, a white settlement here, and so there were many different schemes, um, assistance schemes to pay the passage of people from um, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland to come over here. Um, they were funded by the sale of Crown land and and other other. There, there was many different ones of them, um, but they were targeted specifically at settling Australia. Um, the Irish were very good at taking up these schemes. They they were quite good at it, even though the Australian authorities didn't necessarily want more Irish Catholics. They, they couldn't sort of exclude them, um, even though they might have wanted to. Mm. As the reason why Irish would have wanted to come, Ireland at that time from the 1830s to the end of the 19th century, if you were um, a small landholder or the child of a small landholder, the prospects weren't great. Um, there were... Uh, very little land to to claim as your own or to inherit after the famine, so after the mid-century. Generally, small farmers would um, elect one child, one son to inherit and one daughter to, to get a dowry so they could marry locally. And the rest of the children wouldn't have a share of the family resources. So their options were to leave the farm, uh, to get employment within an island or to migrate. There's very little employment within Ireland. It wasn't very industrialised and so didn't have the options of moving to a big city and getting work in the cities, really. So then it was migration. Mm. There was long patterns over centuries of migration to um, Britain and also to the United States. And so you get you get what's termed chain migration. One one family member will go, will send back um, letters, information, money and say, Cousin Peggy, come on over, I can help you get work. And that that's one of the ways that these chains, as they say, started. Mm. And that also worked in Australia. So yeah. they would take up one of the government offers. Um, they would come over here. A young man might come over here and set up and get a job, earn some money, send it back to his family and say, you know, now it's time for my sister to come or now it's time for my cousin or I'll give money for, you know, a friend to come and they would then help them on the first step. Uh, so, so that's a sort of chain migration. It's also really striking with Irish migration in general to Australia and to the United States that it's a young person's game. Mm. This is young um, single people, so between 16 and 25, unmarried, who would set out, there, which is different to other European migration, which tends to be families. Um, they come out and on the ship's manifest, they look like they're on their own. Um, but actually they're usually, not always, but they're usually travelling with siblings, cousins or friends from the parish. So they're, they're mm. coming out in established networks, um, which gives them a little bit of support as they start off on the great unknown, really, um, in Australia. The other thing to remember, of course, was that Australia, from the 1850s, there were gold rushes. So Australia had a reputation of being somewhere where you could get employment, where you could find gold or find land or, or be able to buy land and you could set yourself up. 
Mm. So it was it was seen to be a good place to go if you could manage the the expensive and long journey. Yes, and there's this other element which I'm sure fits in with free settlement in your discussion there around um, nuns and priests and the actual Catholic Church itself coming over and setting up churches and parishes um, themselves and building um, bluestone churches, some of which are pretty stunning pieces of architecture. Um, How did they have access to the kinds of funds to establish these kind of parishes and, um, you know, beautiful monuments in the late 19th century? Yeah, well, the Catholic Church is really important to the Irish community. Um, One of the interesting things about Australian settlement and the, the both the once the initial convict period was over, but into the era of free settlement, is that there were deliberate decisions made um, but to to make sure that this was a, a society where there would be equal religious freedom, which meant that um, there was not one state religion and that, uh, that land was often set aside for all the denominations, including Catholics. So that helped. Um, but yes, the Catholic Church was very keen to, to set up and to minister to their growing numbers of parishioners. Um, while initially the Catholic Church was English-based, it wasn't Irish, from the 1850s, 60s it became increasingly Irish clergy, bishops, archbishops, um, nuns, brothers. Mm. They financed it through don- small donations, mostly small donations from from parishes would give their bit. There's lots of cake sales, lots of bazaars, lots of lots of women doing lots mm. of work that is really hidden in the archives of setting up these bazaars and fates to raise the money. Uh, there would be government grants, um, but it was it was hard work by both the clergy and the and the laity in in getting the money together. When there was gold rushes, that helped. Mm. So St Patrick's Cathedral here was initially much smaller and then the gold <laughs> rush hit and uh, the Archbishop at the time decided that we can make it much bigger. So that's why it gets to the size that it is because yeah. it's from donations from people who make it rich. Yeah. Yeah. I love that it's the women doing the hard and yes. invisible work to make these things happen. Um, no doubt that in Irish history, like all history, women don't get the kind of attention that they deserve and probably shouldn't just be singled out in a one chapter to talk about women existed too. Don't forget about them. But your focus in your work is also on gender. So in terms of women um, and that them being a key migrant and also probably um, a key worker, a person who not only um, looks after children but does all the domestic work themselves, what was the female Irish experience when they were in Australia in the, like, perhaps late to early, so 19th and 20th century? Was there, you know, a difference in um, Irish women's experience or the way that they perceived themselves versus British women or English women who came across? And I'm thinking probably that perhaps Protestantism and Catholicism might have um, influenced different experiences? Yeah, well, one of the... One of the unique characteristics, really, of the Irish is that it's equal uh, migrants. Is when I said there was young people mm. came out. It was equal numbers of men and women, and and often um, women predominated. Predominated. So that was partly because in Ireland itself there are very few opportunities for women, um, and so if you couldn't get married. 
uh, your opportunity, and you couldn't be a nun, and you ne- you needed to be relatively wealthy to be a nun um, because you had to pay a dowry and you had to set yourself up. So if you couldn't get married and you couldn't be a nun, there were and you couldn't get work as a domestic servant in the cities, uh, and they were small. You had to emigrate. You had to Mm. go to get married, to get a job. And so lots of young Irish women left. It's also a time in the 19th century, up until probably the First World War, when the hard yakka of um, households was done by domestic servants. And so there was a huge demand for domestic servants in Australia, United States, everywhere. The newspapers in the 19th century are just full of Mm. ads for domestic servants, but also complaints of middle-class housewives saying that they, they couldn't get decent servants or they kept leaving or they wouldn't do what they were told or they broke the crockery and all that sort of stuff. So huge demand for domestic servants. And that's what most Irish women, single women, when they arrived, they did. They became domestic servants. Yeah. There was discrimination against them. There was a lot of discrimination against Irish Catholics. Uh, there was very um, no Irish need apply ads, uh, which were, although not a huge number, they were aimed predominantly at women servants inside the house. Um, there was also lots and lots of ads that says Protestant preferred or British and Scottish preferred, uh, which effectively you, you, you were discouraged mm. from applying if you were Irish and Catholic. That said, the demand for domestic servants was so high that many of those middle class housewives were probably disappointed and that they had to make do with, yeah. uh, with an Irish Catholic um, servant, and then when those Catholic, when those servants themselves got married, which most of them did, many of them too employed servants. So mm. because you had to, if you if you had any status at all, or you had any um, ability to get someone to help, even the poor, even quite poor households would get you know the neighbour's girl to come over and help with the washing. Mm. So it really was you know there was a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, so domestic servants service was the main employment, and then you get teaching. Um, and nursing by the 19th and 20th century, predominantly within Catholic institutions. Mm. And so let's talk about race, which is the first section of your book. And it's a pretty interesting um, section because often one would think... um, or just make an assumption around the fact that, well, you're from the UK, what we now call the UK, what was before, you know, England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, um, you know, you broadly have a similar culture. So, you know, there's not a racial distinction being made. Um, but those, there were, there were racial distinctions made in Australia. A lot of the legacy um, issues in Britain were brought over um, and I was really interested in the idea or or there was all this race science and um, social Darwinism in the 19th century that was occurring so it's happening in a context of a broader global um, you know pseudoscience essentially Um, but I was really interested that the Irish were constantly singled out as being a separate race and a separate ethnicity and that they had distinct characteristics or qualities that were down to their genetics and blood and um, could you I guess share with us what why people made such a distinction between um, Irish people and them having a different race to say the English 
Yeah, well, it does come down to this pseudoscience of um, uh, which is influenced, as you say, by things like social Darwinism and a whole host of other things. But um, and it's quite murky. It's mm. it can be quite hard to pin down. Sometimes people who write about this they have they obviously are using one definition of race at the beginning of the sentence and another definition by the end of the sentence. So sometimes they talk about race as physical characteristics, um, which we might be a little bit more familiar with, the meaning of race. Other times race means things like language or religion or things that we might now come down to ethnicity. So they were very mingled and the same word was used all the time, Mm. which makes it a bit hard to disentangle. But essentially there were hierarchies of racial hierarchies worked out by the Europeans, um, Germans, French, Italian, English philosophers. Um, Generally speaking, they tended to put Germanic people at the top. So English came into Germanic people, Anglo-Saxon, Germans, good Protestant stock, Northern European stock. Underneath that, they would put um, Southern Europeans uh, as being lesser, uh, warmer blood, nearer the sun, not didn't work as hard, all those sort of characteristics. Um, then you go, you keep going down the hierarchy. Right at the bottom would be uh, what they saw as the black races and Chinese and Asian races. Above them, but certainly below that mm. that Northern European lot, were either Celtic races or Irish in particular. And they were seen to be sometimes they were seen as being Negroid, like very close to African. This was partly because they were dark. They were seen as swarthy, dark. They measured lots of heads and tried to prove that their heads were smaller. They uh, looked at how they were living, saw they were living in abject poverty, uh, saw that they cultivated potatoes, which they saw as being very lazy, that this was a sign of barbarity, of not being civilised. And so, and they spoke a different language. They spoke Irish. They persisted in being Catholic rather than being good Protestants. All of this meant they were lesser. Mm. Yeah, so that was an attitude in in Britain, but they of course went to Australia when the the um, they, Australia was settled. So you do keep getting attitudes about the Irish being lesser, being um, irrational, overly violent, um, not able to govern themselves. You get lots of writers, you get lots of cartoonists, you get this come out in Irish jokes, mm. and it still persists really in Irish jokes that attitude of dumb, um, cunning. Irish who don't really know what they're saying or, you know, those sorts of things. So it was definitely a thread that continued um, throughout the 19th into the 20th and, you know, perhaps we can still see traces of it in Irish jokes Mm -hmm. and and some silly things sometimes politicians say. Yes, and you also have this um, stereotyping of the Irish as being drunken and, you know, reliant on alcohol and also being superstitious um, because of their largely Catholic faith. Um, So, you know, we do see that discrimination continue, um, although obviously not to the same extent that people of colour were discriminated against. So there's still a very different experience. Um, But it it was also interesting that you highlight the way that the Irish... Uh, experience discrimination and then also themselves discriminated against others and um, you know it's never simple that one group is doing one thing Um, but you really highlight two different kind of relations um, that I was particularly interested in the not only um, relationships between Indigenous Australians and the Irish but also between um, Chinese migrants and the Irish there was um, 
marriage between both like in different circumstances and that was also quite interesting to me that at a time when um you know there's either the the idea of the white Australia policy or at least the racial beginnings of it was already there and then the actual establishment of it in the early 20th century. Presumably, you know, the Australian government tried its hardest to prevent or discourage that kind of intermixing given their, you know, racial preoccupation with, um, you know, Asia above above them and obviously their, you know, extreme, really extremely racist policies against uh, Aborigines. But what was that interplay between, you know, Irish migrants and then um, either uh, the First Nation peoples in Australia and also the Chinese? It is complicated, as yeah. you say, and and this is where I think we need to be careful not to completely generalise. Um, one of the things that uh, often scholars argue that the Irish weren't racially discriminated against is that there were um, never or extremely rarely restrictions on intermarriage, and you don't you certainly don't find any restrictions in Australia that restrict who the Irish can marry are based on the fact that they're Irish. You do find that with um, Aboriginal people, mm. obviously, and also with with Chinese as well. And you certainly find that in other countries. So the Irish were not subject to that sort of discrimination and repression at all. The Irish themselves, or groups of them, also participated in uh, massacres of Indigenous peoples, some of the most famous ones. You will find Irish names there. Mm, like the Mile Creek Like Mile Creek. Like yeah. Mile Creek, there are... Um, I, um, there are identified ones of the ones who were executed were Irish. Um, but with Mile Creek as well, you also have the police officer who was charged with investigating it. You have the judges and the lawyers who were involved were also Irish and they were determined to prosecute. So you also have that as well. Um, so it is it is complex. You have people, Irish-born people on, on all sides really. Um Generally speaking, though, the Irish Irish attitudes to Aboriginal um, people as they settled were very similar to their English neighbours. Uh, they saw them generally as in, impediments to them setting up farms themselves and the, to them gaining what they mm. wanted is a step on the ladder to social acceptability. There were certainly exceptions to that, and those exceptions are very important is we have lots of evidence of loving family relationships between Irish-born, particularly men, and Aboriginal women, and occasionally the other way around, that seem to have been supportive and not exploitative, although in the 19th century it's a bit hard to tell. And you certainly many um, Aboriginal families now trace back their own family histories to Irish um Irish particularly men and you know that, that that's an important part of their family history and is certainly nothing that we can dismiss. There are also lots of Aboriginal families now who um, have Irish men in their in their past who weren't so great who who were quite exploitative or um, you know didn't didn't set up stable relationships so we get all mm. all sides to that. There's certainly um, a lot of it complexity there and it needs a lot more research and a lot more work at um, really establishing what was going on. Yeah. Um, some of the fruitful research that might happen in the future is looking at particularly the role of the police, um, the new massacre maps that have come up, um, which some of them do have do actually list police's names. Up to 80% of the police at different times were Irish in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. 
And um, many of them were involved, of course, in mm. massacres and dispossession and taking children. Um, and so looking at looking at whether there was any conscious um, feeling of based on shared dispossession in the past between those groups would be something to, mm. to be researched, but it certainly... Um, is, is a bit of an open question, really. Yeah. I'm speaking with Diane Hall and we're talking about uh, her new co-authored book. It's called A New History of the Irish in Australia. And um, we'll be back to close out this discussion uh, in a couple of minutes, so stick around. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins and uh, I've been speaking with Diane Hall who's an Associate Professor in History at Victoria University and we are talking about her new co-authored book which is called A New History of the Irish in Australia. Uh, Elizabeth Malcolm is the other author. Now to close out this discussion, um, Diane, let's bring it a little bit further into the 20th century. Um, you, I mean, war is a great leveller and it tends to bring out a lot of different issues that are kind of simmering underneath in Australian society and we saw um, with the conscription referendums there were two of them that really did um, rip apart Australian and kind of Australia and divide them into two camps and there was the yes camp and the no camp um, obviously oversimplifying how it all happened but this was a really kind of key moment for a range of reasons Um, obviously Australia is very egalitarian and we didn't want to... We were the only nation who eventually did not conscript um, our citizens and force them to serve in World War I. Um, but we did see a kind of divide that, that tended to move, um, put Irish Catholics on one side and British Protestants or other Protestants on the other side um, and they would often be represented by these kind of various figureheads and one really key figurehead was Daniel Mannix who was the Archbishop, Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne. Um, So I just want to understand I guess in terms of these divides or um, issues, tensions and violence, actual civil violence that arose between the two sides, was it a neat division between you know Irish Catholics and Protestants and you know working class versus middle class or business and um, labor versus well parts of labor versus other parts of labor you know what, what have we kind of understood I guess the nuance of Irish and Catholic involvement in the conscription campaigns given that you've been speaking in on writing in this book that there was a lot of um, there wasn't necessarily homogeneity within the Irish themselves when they were did migrate to Australia. It is complex. Um, Certainly Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister at the time, uh, he blamed the Irish Catholics for losing those referendum. And he he certainly put all the blame on that. And there's there's a heap of evidence to say that. And he said it very publicly. Um, He blamed them because of the um, because of the Irish Rebellion of 1916, and he also picked up that, um, and he and many others picked up that the Irish in Ireland were also apparently reluctant to serve um, in the British Army, and the Ir- Ireland was also the other country that didn't have conscription, mm. um, and they fought it very hard as well, uh, and that was always brought up as a reason for their um, their ungrateful their they 
they're treasonous, they don't mm. want to serve, those sorts of things. So it was certainly seen to be like that. And Mannix himself, uh, he picked up on that as partly through being Irish, partly working class though. It was partly more, more class, I think a lot of research now says... And that for working class Irish Catholics, and most Irish Catholics were working class, um, the economics of it was that they they sided more with no. We we are we are pretty sure. It's a little bit hard to get precise figures because. Um, we, we, we get down to electorates of how they voted rather than individual returns. So we can we can do sophisticated things with numbers of the number of, um, you know, where you have high Irish populations and then you look at the, the vote one way or the other for that population. So it does seem that Irish cat areas with a high proportion of Irish Catholics tended to vote no. They also were high proportions of working class, highly unionised, um, involved in labour politics, all of which also voted no. Which bits were the most important to people? A little bit hard to say. Uh, but yes, it was certainly perceived that the Irish Catholics were the reason for the high no vote mm. and they were blamed for that. And it did increase sectarian conflict and sectarian strife at both a um, knock them down on the head in the pub level and, and street violence, but also in uh, discrimination and splits within families and things like that, which, which continued for many, many years afterwards. Mm. Yeah. And Diane, I mean, this book raises a range of areas that haven't been examined probably to the extent that they should have and probably um, as you've highlighted you know when we're doing histories of Australia or histories of Irish migration there isn't probably the amount of nuance or attention paid to Irish people and their experience and that it differed and that there was certainly not one experience Um, and I guess this idea that they fit in under the Anglo or British umbrella um which you know oversimplified how how life was really experienced in australia in terms of the areas that you've identified in this book what do you think is some of the most or if not the most kind of glaring area that just has not been i guess properly examined or understood or researched to the extent that it probably should in terms of you know its importance to our understanding of of australia's history I think the the issue of um, Irish and Indigenous relations is is the key one that that mm. I think far more research needs to be done on. Um, I think also unpacking what, when, and why, and what what it sort of means is this the term we use in common parlance now of Anglo Celtic that it was the Anglo Celtic nineteenth century, or we talk about the Anglo Celt saying one thing and um, Indigenous or Italian migrants saying another mm. thing, um, and that term is of course a nonsense if we're talking about nineteenth and early twentieth century. Nobody at that time would have found any meaning in that term um, because the the Irish themselves would have distinguished themselves from their um, English and Scottish neighbours or descent thereof. They would all have... They would have thought of themselves as Australian. There, there wouldn't have been any doubt about that. Um, but they wouldn't have seen themselves necessarily as British or as certainly not as Anglo. Mm. So to lump them in together, um, I think, is something that needs disentangling far more than it has. Yeah. Well, there's certainly, as we said at the beginning of the interview, took up a substantial proportion of 
the country or the population. Mm. So it's, um, you know, a bit surprising that we haven't really considered that. And also, obviously, I guess um, the, those new frontier violence studies and the understanding of it is still pretty um, emerging in, mm. and it's obviously really difficult when record-keeping is not... Uh, that reliable and you are often reliant on diaries of settlers and whether they're they're even um, reliable accounts is kind of questionable depending on the person and the other issue I guess um, is around oral history and the fact that a lot of Aboriginal history is oral orally based and um, that provides some level of challenge for historians today. Absolutely, but you know, historians are up for the challenge, and we're always out to work with what we've got. They are. I know that's. It's really exciting. Obviously, great detectives and lovers of a mystery and a thriller. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Diane. Thank you so much um, for generously giving your time and insights today. And uh, this book is pretty substantial. Um, so I really have to emphasise that we've just scratch the surface of what is a very in-depth and um, interesting account of the Irish uh, migrant experience in Australia and uh, congratulations to you and Elizabeth on a great work. Thank you. I've been speaking with Diane Hall who is an Associate Professor in History at Victoria University and if you'd like to follow up on this you can uh, find their book A New History of the Irish in Australia and it's out through New South Books. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, I'm delighted to have with me in the studio uh, photojournalist Darian Trainer, and uh, he's, well... He does a lot of different work and um, obviously one, when you're a photographer and a photojournalist, one is um, diverse in their subject matter. So uh, as I said at the top of the show, um, you may often see image credits with Darian's name in uh, Fair, well, it used to be Fairfax, now I guess it's Channel 9, uh, newspapers. And uh, he obviously gets to do a whole range of work. His paid work is um, around sport photography, uh, particularly iron know his work for AFL given I'm slightly obsessed like most other Melburnians in this uh, city but Darian also has um, other areas that he's really passionate about and um, he travels to different locations around the world to focus on the um, plight of people who have been displaced by conflict and um, this that is the subject of his new exhibition um, which is on at the moment and um, I'll give you the details of that in a second uh, but the the subject matter and the areas that we're looking at are Gaza, uh, Jordan and Lebanon and um, Darian is uh, highly awarded and I even gave him an award myself um, on behalf of the UN Media Peace Awards so welcome Darian to the studio and thanks for coming in. Thanks very much, Amy. Thanks for having me. And um, you obviously have been working on this series or various series for a long time. You've, this is um, the summation of three years' worth of your own time and your own funds to go to um, these different countries and to highlight particularly um, those who are doing it really tough at the moment and who have been displaced probably in most circumstances from their original um, home country or home place, um, particularly I'm thinking about 
what's been most in people's minds recently is the Syrian conflict and the fact that so many Syrians were pushed across the border to um, different countries like Jordan, for example. Um, But what really has motivated you to focus your attention and your lens on the people um, who have been displaced, who are really um, in a position that is probably the worst position one could find oneself in and um, who are clearly really resilient um, and amazing people. Yeah, um, there's a lot to cover there. But yeah. I think if it's, if it's not too, uh, too much of a cliche and too bad if it is, I think there was a photograph in 1993 and I was in high school uh, in 1993, finishing year 12. That gives you an idea of how old I am. Um, <laughs> Youthful. Yes, and uh, I was studying... One of the classes I had was was politics, and it was covering US politics at the time. And there was a photograph of then-US President Bill Clinton on the White House lawn with um, Yasser Arafat, leader of the PLO, and Yitzhak Rabin. And uh, I was fascinated at the time as to who this who this chap was uh with the headscarf mm. and I, I it was an amazing photograph and it was amazing i remember it just being an amazing moment um and at the time i had no idea what palestine was where palestine even was you know i was in year mm. 12 i would you know it, I, I didn't know anything about the world at that stage um but it kicked off my fascination with with this you know with palestine israel and 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 what that all was about um after many sort of varying careers and whatever I, I landed in in photography you know 10 years ago or or finished studying uh, photography about 10 years ago and I decided that um, th- th- this Palestine thing had had always been there I thought I'll, I'll go there and uh, and see it for myself um, Australian media had its own coverage of it and the world media had its own co- coverage of it but I just I wanted to see it for myself and make up my own mind mm. um, so in 2016, I headed to to Israel and uh, and Palestine and Gaza to to document um, life after after conflict. So essentially, as, as a freelancer, you're you're limited somewhat in, in some ways to what you can what you can cover. But you've also got to be smart about the way you document things. So I'm not going to rush off to a war zone where. Um, all the major media outlets have correspondence on the ground because my work's just not going to get picked up because they're paying for their own people to be there. But what the the gap in the market for freelancer, or my my theory is, the gap in the market is after war when the, when the media is no longer paying attention, when the bombs have stopped dropping. Um, what is it like? So, 2016 Gaza um, was two years after the the, the 2014 um, war that they had there, and I thought I'll go and see what what life is like two years later um which i did and documented and and some of that features in the exhibition um and that trip probably just sparked uh, a whole lot more interest in the region and and what we were going to learn or what mistakes that we had we made in the past as as a, as a you know humanity um were we going to go through the same problems with with now with syrians displaced millions of syrians displaced all over the middle east um, and you know, and the Palestinian plight with with so many of them already displaced and um, living in all the, all the different countries uh, through the Middle East. So that's kind of where it 
where it all started and it, and it has just grown from that, yeah. Mm. And obviously, although a lot of that really intense violence has stopped and there are, you know, flashpoints occasionally where things do get very heated, but um, there is still a major issue with Israel and Palestine and um, those Palestinians who are essentially confined to a very, very small, narrow land mass um, in that whole area and there's obviously a contest around who owns or is able to reside in different parts of Israel and Palestine. So in your um, visit to Palestine, um, I was pretty struck by just how difficult life is in terms of basic um, services and basic things like sewage and water and um, rubbish waste disposal. And I mean, what was your... um, encounter over there and what kind of struck you the most in terms of how Palestinians are actually living? Yeah, so there's sort of <clears throat> there's sort of two two situations or two scenarios mm. for, for, for Palestinians. So the ones the Palestinians that live in Gaza are essentially it's referred to as the siege, um, they can't leave Gaza. So there isn't they can't get out of the border, so they can't go into uh, to Egypt, they can't take the boat off the off the coast and then and they're not often allowed back into israel and when i say they can't that there's there's permits you can apply for but that, that you know so many are always knocked back or excuses and those um those checkpoints those those like so the one into into egypt and the one into back into um israel are very rarely open they're often closed um so those those people inside gaza so the over two million people inside gaza are uh, don't have a lot of basic needs so whatever doesn't get imported or whatever doesn't get taken in there which is under the rule of you know what what israel will allow in there so you know things like the water treatment plant that were bombed years ago um so you know you've got raw sewage sort of flowing flowing into the sea um which affects the, the, the coastal waters you know the mediterranean and off gaza so fishermen at times are limited to sort of three mile radius or three miles off the coast before um israeli naval ships sort of uh limit them going any further that that line uh goes in and out on you know, when they decide that they can fish out further and, and things like that so and there's you know there's a damage to sort of power plants and electricity limited um sort of hours of electricity during the day so it's a, it's really dependent on what's allowed in uh building for you know building um materials and things like that are often not allowed to be shipped in there for fear that you know um hamas will use most of the concrete and stuff like that um to build tunnels back into israel so people are having a hard time rebuilding homes that have been destroyed and bombed um and then you've got the second group sort of people that live in in the west bank um that are sort of more so not so much under siege more under what they call occupation in that they have checkpoints um everywhere and 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 their their movement is monitored um quite extensively in that they have to go through checkpoints to move around out of town um you know they often have separate roads that they have to use that are not um you know the main roads that perhaps israeli citizens or people with um you know israeli registered vehicles and uh, so they have a they have a different set of rules but they often um come into contact and come into conflict with you know israeli defense forces 
more often than say that the people of Gaza would because Gaza uh, the Israeli Defence Force withdrew from Gaza and it's just um, just the Gazans in there now the Palestinians in there now whereas the West Bank um, will have Israeli soldiers stationed at checkpoints and and there's always that you know potential for for flare-ups um, as Palestinians and and Israeli Defence Force sort of uh, meet or, or clash or collide every day. So mm. there's a, a different set of circumstances f- for for some of the Palestinians in there. And then, of course, you have um, the wider sort of diaspora where you've got, you know, thousands and thousands, uh, millions of, of Palestinians uh, in refugee camps in, 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 other, in other countries as well. Um, so in 20... 18 I was in Lebanon so last mm. year we were in Lebanon and and looked at um some of the Palestinian refugee camps that have been there for for 70 years you know from 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 1948 so um and that they don't have Lebanese citizenship and they don't necessarily can't you know vote or have any sort of say in 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 the democratic process or or any of those processes in Lebanon so they're sort of um you know living outside of, of of palestine they can't really return they don't have the really rights um so they're sort of lost in limbo and and generations of people being born as as palestinians but have never actually set foot uh in what was traditional palestine mm. and um in the in your visit to lebanon and you you refer to um that in your i guess descriptions of it um you talk about the is it Shatila mm. refugee camp which is uh based in southern beirut and you say it could be um referred to as its own tiny island state operating inside lebanon given that you say it's really been around for such a long period of time do the people who live there and who you encountered through your photography do they i mean how does one live in a constant state of displacement or not belonging necessarily to your home country or your home culture and um, you know have they built their own i guess um kind of mini home or mini culture or yeah, yeah. A, a different. I guess have they adapted in some way? I can't. Yeah, I can't. I, I mean, I, I witnessed it, and I mm. and you speak to people, and you and you see it. I can't, um, you know, get my head around or, or or understand it. You know, you go into Shatila, and there's Palestinian flags, and you know, Palestinian culture is is right at the forefront, and yet there are thousands of people in there that uh, you know that are Palestinian that. Mm that have never been or may never go to Palestine. So it's like being born, um, you know, Australian but never having set foot in Australia. So you've got this this sort of mythical link to a homeland, to a country that you've never seen and, and you may never set foot on and you live in this region um, and you live in Lebanon but you mm. don't consider yourself Lebanese and the government of Lebanon doesn't obviously consider you Lebanese. So there's this... Yeah, there's this real longing and, and want and, and, like I said, taking on sort of this mythical sort of idea of this homeland. Um, I, I can't imagine how they, you know, grapple with that identity. And, and you know, the, the Shatila is, I think, something like uh, one kilometre sort of square. It's quite small, but... Um, and there is no space to, to grow out. So mm-hmm. it just continues to grow up. So, you know, once when it was one or two stories it's you know up to seven or eight stories high and they just sort of build on top of each other and um 
you know, Shatila is also facing... Uh, oh, it's uh, faced overcrowding mm. decades ago, perhaps, but it's now facing uh, the problem with Syrian refugees also coming into there because, you know, um, Lebanon's obviously very, very close to, to Syria and those people that have, that have come across the border into Lebanon are now looking for places to stay and um, Lebanon are avoiding sort of trying to set up the UN camps that... that other countries have because they already have so many displaced um, Palestinians they don't want to fall down you know, or, or, or repeat the same problems so you've got sort of these what they call gatherings rather or settlements rather than sort of uh, official camps for, for Syrians inside Lebanon so yeah the Palestinians are not you know have not always been the greatest of house guests at the, <laughs> in, in history when they were in Jordan and wherever else but but you know having said that that they, they really don't have uh, anywhere else to go yeah it's i also can't really get my head around that because it is pretty shocking and it's a unique position to be in um obviously the israel palestine situation is almost unrivaled in that kind of really harsh border and like land dispute um but I mean, we're seeing also Israel elections right now, actually, um, which will be interesting to see what happens given that Netanyahu's being criticised and has a lot of allegations around um, corruption at the moment. But, you know, in terms of your um, experience of the and meeting the different types of Palestinians and, you know, obviously they're in different places, physically in different places as well, um, what were some of the the people who, you know, captured your attention um, and that you decided to photograph and, I mean, why did you kind of focus your attention to them? Yeah, I think, well... I- so the, the the two the two main groups obviously the Palestinians mm. and then the Syrians I think yep. that the Palestinians I think it was for me was a was a process of of me understanding it to start with like I said when I referred back to that picture um, of Bill Clinton on the White House lawns with with Yasser Arafat it was understanding the, the, the Palestinian plight what is this all about you know who are these people um, and I was just drawn to them as as you know you can't this sort of work you can't remove the politics obviously this sort of work the documentary photojournalism is political in its very nature but it's also very human and i just wanted to photograph and and tell the stories of these people let them tell their stories through their photographs so the photographs should never be and photojournalism should never be about the photographer it's always about the person in the photograph and the story you're letting you know you're you're telling or allowing them to tell their story um to see these people f- for who they are as humans and and look at look at what um we as australians or we as in the west have in common like this we so quickly to uh to divide and and you know separate segregate through race and religion and skin color and um all of these things but you know these people want a better life for their children than they had they want a roof over their head they want to be able to provide they want an education they're all fundamentally you know things that any australian would want any of us would want they're they're just human traits and and before you see you know a a skin color a race a language before you see any of that you need to you need to see the human um and that's what really struck me with with the palestinians and has now continued into this, the, with the Syrians as well. Um, I don't feel 
a language barrier. I, you know, I travel over there. I don't speak Arabic. I travel over there with, and I have a local fixer and, and, mm. and all of that that comes along with that. And it's shocking on, on a visual sense at the very start. But then when you sit down and just hear the stories and the people are just telling stories about their, their family and what they want and their goals and their dreams and it's, it's, it's no different than, than what the people in the suburbs of Melbourne would want for their children or the people all over Australia would want. So um, that, that's the fundamental sort of message or the fundamental you know, sort of guiding light through, mm. through the whole body of work. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like a common humanity and, yeah, as you say, common aspirations that most people share. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, they're in the, is it Shatila camp um, or settlement, there's, you know, a range of young boys, um, you know, cycling around or, um, as we can see, as I'm looking up on the computer screen, they're playing games. Um, so there is kind of life that is, I guess, not, I mean, there are moments of fun or play for children, even in a very dark, um, difficult space where, you know, there's not a lot of um, ability for people to make a living or to um, do what most people would do in terms of ascribing an identity and a purpose in life. Um, in terms of the adult experience versus the child experience, um, I remember that you were talking about Jordan and how a lot of the men struggled because they didn't have that ability to go out and you know and do the, provide in a traditional way in the way that they expected themselves to do so, and that the women often um, could fit more easily into their own kind of traditional roles, which was around you know providing that glue that really keeps sure. a family together. Did you find that applied in other areas as well? Um, so Shatila's, you know, in Lebanon is, is slightly different mm. in that, uh, well, uh, f- firstly, the children. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're born into that space, you're born into a refugee camp, you grow up there, you, you, your neighbour is your neighbour, and you, you, kids are very resilient. They find a way to make it fun and they'll... they'll kids will play and yeah. there's there's things to play with and um you know bicycles are everywhere and it's um Shatilla's like a like a little rabbit warren it's just little laneways and alleyways and um kids will run and hide and that kids will be kids um and 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 inside Shatilla, very much like like uh Zattery and Jordan you know that there are there are shops and there are you know there are businesses and people have set up so there's an aspect of, of, of life goes on and they can leave um, Shatilla. So you can, you can, mm. there's no fence around it. It's just, it's just another neighbourhood. So the Palestinian people that live there can walk out of there and, and go into downtown Beirut and they, they can access everything. So if they need to buy supplies or bring supplies back and unlike, um, say, it, it, in Zatari and Jordan where they had to get permits to mm. leave and... and um, yeah, so the, so the Lebanon set up so that the, the camps, in, well, that particular camp, Shatila in, in Lebanon, it, they, have a, they have more freedom, but it's, it's obviously very difficult for them to find gainful employment within sort of Lebanese culture or, the, or Lebanon greater um, because they, just, they don't have the rights. There's certain jobs they can never apply for and, you know, it's always sort of the lower end of the scale, sanitation, things like that. Um, but they have set up, you know, set up their lives, set up their businesses and, and the, the generations that grow up there 
uh, probably won't know any different. So they so they move on. Mm-hmm. Um, incredibly incredibly resilient um, people. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and um, there's a lot of well, you do have portraiture, and there's this one man who is very. Um, he draws you in, I guess, and he has beautiful kind of kind eyes, I would say. Yes. Um, and I'm talking about a Syrian man, Abu Adel, yep. who um, you photographed in a Syrian refugee camp in the north of Lebanon. Mm. How did you encounter him? And um, I guess you must have established some kind of rapport to have that level of um, closeness. Yeah. So, like I said earlier, I work with local fixers um, Mm. on the ground. So a fixer is, you know, a translator, a driver, a guidance advisor, right? Like they're your your conduit to the the real world. Um, You know, I'll I'll suggest ideas and story ideas and things that I want to do even prior to to travelling to the region. Say, Mm. you know, are you someone who can facilitate this, this and this? And the thing is with, um, with Lebanon, unlike sort of, working, say, in Gaza or, or the West Bank. Lebanon has areas that are controlled by Hezbollah um, and areas that aren't. So you, you, you've got to have a fixer who might be uh, Shia instead of Sunni or they might have to... Have, so there's all that logistics that have to be worked out first. Mm. Um, and then we travelled to the north that particular day. So my fixer had organised for us to just go to a camp. Um, we didn't know the family at all. And we walked around in the camp and... We made contact with these guys and, and my approach, and I think I've said this before, Amy, that, that I'm there to tell their story. So the first thing I want to hear is the story. I don't walk in with the camera ready to go. It's mm. like I'll, I'll, you're invited in and as is Arab culture, you, you sit down and you have tea or coffee first and you don't talk business and you are welcomed and all of those um, those things and I might not pick the camera up for an hour I might just be sitting there listening to the story and working through with the translator and and then it might be a case of oh do you mind if I pull the camera out Mm. um and and still haven't picked it up to take a photo yet just pulled it out and there's you know there's an inevitably a child in the room or something so you'll take a quick picture of that and you know the advancement of technology that these days you've got a digital camera which shows the picture on the back so you show that to the child and they get a kick out of Mm. it and family relax it's you have to build a rapport it's not like you can just go in there and shoot this thing in 30 seconds and be and be gone um you might be there for an hour and a half and you might get two or three photos that you think are worthy and that's that's the length of the the work that's how long it takes and um to be true to them and to be and to be fair i mean that portrait you speak of is is quite intimate the way Mm. i work is is I'm quite close. I use wide-angle lenses. I, I'm, you, I'm very much in his space, um, but you can tell from the photograph, um, if I say, my, say so myself, there is, a, there is a trust. There's an intimacy. There's a, and you know, I look at that picture from time to time, um, and I can't tell if he's just, you know, borderline smiling, or is this, is, is he about to, you know, there's this real sort of pain, but, but you know, stoic sort of look mm. uh, in his face as well. It's a, He's, he's an incredible character um, and, and, you know, they were an incredible family that welcomed us in. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the way you have to work in, in those areas. Yeah, and, I mean, it, it is true. He's kind of... There is this, like, light and dark in it at the same time, which is probably why it's so moving and successful a portrait. And I was wondering, you know, were you saying anything 
before or leading into that photograph or having a conversation at that moment or was it something else? Yeah, so we, we had spoken to him. So I travel with a friend of mine um, who's also been on your show, um, Marika Sosnowski, who is, who is doing a PhD um, on conflict and, and ceasefires in Syria. And so she was having a conversation through our fixer, mm. um, through our translator, with him and he was talking about the possibility uh, they were in they were in sort of a, this waiting living life in limbo we called it and um he, he was in the in the process of perhaps being resettled and he, he was talking about at one stage they were uh, flagged as being a family that might be able to resettle in australia so he had this sort of connection because he was talking about australia now mm. he was told you know that the story went on and um he said you know okay we think we can resettle you there this is going to be a three-week process you know six weeks later he hadn't heard anything and you know three months later he hadn't heard anything six months later oh no that fell through so they lived their life like this all the time oh then it's going to be france we think you're going to move to france Mm. okay and then the whole process starts again and again and again and you know i had picked up the camera and, and, and said now that you know would he mind if I took his photograph at this point? And, and he just sort of, he touched on those, on those topics and my translator had, had um, you know, r- revealed that information to me and he, he knew that I had understood what he had said and mm. so there was, this, there was this connection in, in the moment that, you know, after he had spoken and had gone through a translator, there's this delay and then when I realised what was being said and started to nod, he knew that I knew and... Yeah, it's a connection when you take that photograph. So um, it's an interesting process because it's all slowed down through a translator. So yeah. there's this moment of realisation and that's it's when... It's body you, language. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating process. Yeah, it, I, it's such a different way clearly of like the... Versus the photography you're doing in sport, which is kind of, you know, of the moment and reactive and about action. Sure. This is like, a, you know, human relationships and connections and stories and yeah it's a really interesting it kind of seems like there's almost a magic element to it well and and an unspoken thing going on for sure i mean the thing about the 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 news photography and and the sport and and everything else i cover back here in australia it's very anonymous right Mm. so you stand back and you document what happens i don't interact with a sporting athlete while they're performing i'm just i'm just documenting it so there's this removal um and you're often shooting with long lenses so you're a long way away so there's there is no connection yeah you you're photographing a performer Uh, these instances are very very personal and it takes time to build rapport and you have to be in the moment you have to respect the story and the situation and there are times when the story is too deep or uh, the person is too emotional that the photo can't be taken. It's dis- disrespectful. So you, there are there have been many times that that's like ah, this is not right. We're not yeah. we're not doing this. Um, so it's a very very different way of shooting. Yeah. Mm. And um, also then, if we're talking about landscape and like the actual place itself, I mean, I'm looking at another which shows it's such a beautiful contrast between the camps that are, you know, really, um, well, sheets and a whole range of different materials that have been put together to create shelter. And then this massive contrast of these kind of rolling hills of, you know, stunning epic beauty in terms of that landscape in uh, Lebanon. I mean, how 
how do you engage in that sense in terms of like capturing the feeling of a place? Yeah, it's <clears throat> that's also quite a challenge because you're there to tell the people's stories and you want to be engaged, but you do need to set the scene. Mm. Um, and something, some, a place like Lebanon, which is just so diverse in its landscape, you know, you've got these these sort of beautiful beaches on the Mediterranean when you're down in Beirut and then you can go skiing in the afternoon, you know, if you're up in the mountains or somewhere like the Bekar Valley. Like, so um, you, you need to be mindful of that and, and try to capture that. Now, I'm not a landscape photographer in, in any stretch, but th- some, of these, some of these sort of unofficial gatherings and unofficial camps are, are spread out uh, all through the Bekar and, and up north and you can see, you know, uh, snow-capped mountains in the background and it's lovely when the sun is shining it's a lovely day but you can only imagine that when winter sets in and you're trying to live in a essentially a glorified tent um, how hard that is to keep dry and warm um, it, it's just it's just incredible and, and the things that these people build um, the shacks and the, and the tents are are built from whatever they can find and um, so they're very very resourceful you know it, so Abu Adel, we were speaking about, built the thing, the tent um, shack that his family lived. I think he built it in like two days from stuff he just scavenged. Um, you know, it's incredibly resourceful, incredibly resilient. Um, little pot heater in the middle of the room that keeps everyone warm. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an eye-opening experience for sure. And um, do you think... Well, clearly this is obviously a passion of yours and it comes through in the photography that you've got in this exhibition. Um, do you have plans to go back to different areas in the Middle East and what would they... Broadly, what are those plans, if you have any? Yeah, I think... So this is three years' worth of work mm. um, and for different reasons, financial and, uh, and personal. I didn't travel this year, so this is about the time of year that I travel. Um, so I've reinvested in the work this year by by having the exhibition and uh, pushing the story out there a little more. Each year I get something published, uh, a few things uh, published. Um, but I, as much as it needs to be about the people and it needs to be about the work, so I find this quite you know difficult plugging the work and talking about me. It's quite um, it's quite ironic that you know that's the, the type of work I want to do, and yet I have to get out here and and talk about it. But the process is, is is to have this exhibition to, to to garner sort of some more interest in it. I think the project probably has three more years. Uh, there's three years in uh, invested so far. It probably has three more. I'd like to travel to Syria um, with some of the families that may return. Turkey also hosts a whole bunch of of, of Syrians um, as well, and I'd, I'd still want to travel back to Gaza to mm. to finish out that story. So there's probably three more years in it. Um, this is a good sort of halfway point perhaps um have the exhibition you know try and get more interest does that help with uh funding or grant applications or or things down the track possibly um like i said the whole thing is is self-funded but that's that's neither here nor there i do what i do during the year to to have this sort of money uh on the side to, to go and do these projects knowing that this is not a money-making exercise, it's a passion exercise, mm. but it's something I have to do, um, something I want to do. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's 
three more years, maybe another exhibition and possibly possibly uh, a book at the end of it all. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, they're really stunning photos and uh, the exhibition is called Occupation Displacement um, by Darian Trainer, who I'm speaking with at the moment. And the it's already just opened by a few days and it runs until May the 2nd at Sun Studios in 95 Buckhurst Street, South Melbourne. Um, and there is an event tonight. There is. So uh, we opened uh, last Thursday night and then... So the gallery's open sort of 9 to 5, Monday to Fridays. But tonight we have a um, an image makers seminar session. Um, so the school that I used to study photography at, Photography Studies College in Melbourne, are hosting an event there tonight at Sun Studios in Buckhurst Street, South Melbourne, where I will... Uh, speak to the work so we'll have a slideshow i'll speak to the images and the work that i've done um and then there'll be you know quite an extensive sort of q a and um, the gallery will be open so you'll be able to come in beforehand or after and see the see the exhibition um i, I think as far as the process goes so they know numbers you can get on um eventbrite and just sort of Google Eventbrite and Darian Trainer, um, mm. and it, it comes up. It's free, so but I think they just take ticket numbers so they know the space. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's at it's at Buckhurst Street in South Melbourne tonight from five thirty, I believe. Yep. Um, so yeah, if you're interested, yeah, if you're interested in that sort of stuff, come down, say hi, come and uh, come and have a look at the work. Um, that'd be great. Thank you so much, Darian, for coming in and it's been fascinating chatting with you. Thanks very much, Amy. I've been speaking with Darian Trainer. He is the photographer behind Occupation Displacement and um, it, the details are up on social media as well, so do check that out. Thank you to my guests today, Diane Hall, Ben Eltham and Darian Trainer. It's been a great um, show for me. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.